Welcome to another Björkness podcast. How have the oceans changed over the past millions of years and how can that knowledge help us prepare for future changes? This is the challenge of paleoceanography. I'm Stephen Alton, here as always with my colleague Ingjul Pilskog. Good day. The ocean is constantly changing and while some changes observed today are unnervingly rapid, many changes in ocean currents unfold over thousands, even millions of years. But how have these changes shaped Earth's climate? How do we learn about changes from so long ago? And how does this help us prepare for changes occurring in a warming world? We're joined today by Einstein Janssen, a professor at the University of Bergen, founding director of the Björkner Centre and an expert in paleo-oceanography. Einstein, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So throughout your career, you focused on integrating knowledge of the different parts of the Earth's climate system to better understand climate and climate change. How does paleoceanography fit into this? I think yeah, it's, it's one of the critical fields that form, has formed our knowledge about the climate system because it gives a more continuous perspective on how the Earth's climate has worked and works over a very long time. And, and uh, without that resource, we there are many things with the climate system we, we wouldn't have known about. For instance, the uh, origin uh, of the ice ages, uh, how rapid the uh, climate system may change, uh, the role of the carbon cycle, and I could mention a, a number of more. But... How do researchers reconstruct, for example, ocean circulation from tens of thousands or even millions of years ago? How is that possible? Yeah, we are we are very fond of mud, so <laughs> so we like to we like to deal with mud. So 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 the critical thing is to find the the good mud uh, that contains uh, traces of of how the ocean has operated in the past. And, and we do that by, by coring um, uh, uh, ocean sediments, primarily deep ocean sediments, where the environment is quite stable and, and the history of the oceans above are layered uh, continuously through time. So, so we, can, we can have normal ships that go out and, and send uh, uh, coring devices, which are long tubes, steel tubes, uh, with a plastic inner lining, and, and they can core. Uh, the biggest ships can core up to 60 meters of of core, uh, but we can also use drill ships. Uh, and there is a scientific drill uh, ship that has been in operation for for many decades. And many of the the big the knowledge of the big changes in in the earth, for instance, plate tectonics has come through that kind of coring. So when you actually get this core, this lay has layers within it saying something about how the ocean uh, has changed over time. So this is a sediment core, so it's material dropping out of the ocean. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, or formed at the bottom, for instance, uh, 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 microscopical uh, 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 
elements that live on the ocean floor. So both what's happening in the in the uh, near the surface that rains down, uh, the uh, elements of the sediment that is blown into the ocean from land, so we can reconstruct land uh, conditions, and and plankton that that lives in in the in the waters and and sediment when they when they die out, and these. Uh, these can be extracted from the sediment in the laboratory. And we have lots of very ingenious ways to, to unravel what's, what, uh, what history they can tell about the ocean. So we have uh, highly specialized labs in the study of mud. Yeah, very highly and very expensive equipment and, and uh, instruments that costs uh, millions of, of uh, euros or kronos. But with this, we are able to unravel how the oceans changed over literally millions of years. Yeah, I think you can, uh, through drilling, you can go back at least 100 million years in some places. Wow. Uh, but uh, uh, what I've been working on is, is more the, the more recent few million years of Earth's history. But uh, you can reconstruct the uh, past temperatures. You can reconstruct the uh, productivity of the ocean, uh, how much CO2 it contained, the uh, paleoacidity of the, of the ocean, uh, uh, dryness of land through wind-blown uh, sediments. Uh, so there are lots of, of elements of, of how the earth works that, that are trapped in these uh, deep-sea sediments. That's all quite incredible. Um, there have been, of course, very warm periods in Earth histories, but there's always transitions back to the state where you have large glaciers of ice and a lot of ice, particularly at the poles. What role has the ocean played in this process of transitioning backwards and forwards between uh, glacial and interglacial periods? Yeah, there are two elements. The long-term trend, say, over the last 60 million years have <coughs> been one of cooling, so there's a long-term trend, uh, but over, over the last uh, uh, some million years, uh, we've had this this uh, uh, in, uh, interglacials, warm periods, and glacial uh, longer glacial periods interwoven, and and uh, uh, the ocean plays a role if you if you take the long-term trends uh, uh, through. Changes in the in the uh, uh, how the oceans and and uh, land configuration is. So if if we have uh, uh, lots of of uh, of, uh, um, of passages through the through the tropics, yeah. uh, we get one type of climate, and when they they those are closed, and the ocean circulates more towards the pole. That creates another type, and then it's also, of course, the interaction between the the mountains and the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, through the uh, mountain belt rising, which influences the monsoons, and then the ocean circulation is is responding to the to the to the winds. So so um, so the configuration of uh, of the land plates versus the ocean. Is very critical. For instance, in some periods, we've had uh, land areas connecting uh, 
uh, Antarctica to higher north, and then then through uh, plate movements, uh, Antarctica became isolated, and that set up uh, the circumantarctic current, which basically isolates Antarctica from the rest of the of, of the world, uh, which makes it much colder. Uh, and and that also that also meant that the ocean was able to trap more CO two, so 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 that that interaction between the uh, the land plates and the ocean plates, and and where the water is is very important. This really is talking on the time scale where the map of the world looks like a totally different planet. Yeah, yeah, clearly. Wow. Uh, but uh, but th- that process, the circumantarctic current, is is also Im- important for the glacial uh, cyclicity, because uh, the strength of, of the wind system around Antarctica and the and the possibility that the ocean there can absorb or degas CO two from the ocean is pr- is a primary control of the the natural. Uh, Content of, of CO two in the atmosphere, so 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 the Southern Ocean is, has a very strong control on on the, the climate state. Um, when we look at sort of interglacial time periods, uh, we see that some researchers talk about how quickly you get some of the changes, particularly when they go into an interglacial period. They say it's a very rapid change, but when they say it's a rapid change. It's not really that rapid, is it? Uh, no, not on the global scale. Not on the glo- uh, regionally, it can be very rapid and go in steps. For instance, in the North Atlantic, there were these very high, uh, very strong warming steps at the end of the last glacial when we get into the, the interglacial that we are in now. Uh, and uh, that deals with the ocean overturning circulation, and that can change quite rapidly but if you look at it on a global scale um, it takes uh, 10,000 years yes uh, to get from from the full glacial state to to a full interglacial state when you say uh, regionally it can be fast like in the North Atlantic how rapid were these uh, steps that you mentioned well we have temperature changes which are recorded both in ocean sediments and and, and ice cores uh, for instance on Greenland uh, where where the temperature changed uh, by several degrees within 100 years. Wow. Uh, and we've done a comparison in one of the studies I was involved in where we compared that rate of change uh, to the rates of change in the Arctic today. And we found that they are comparable in scale. So right now we are undergoing a rapid climate change which scales with the most rapid changes that we have observed in, 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 in the Earth's past. So this is one way paleoceanography gives a perspective of what we are doing now to the climate system. So that means that the anthropogenic change, the really rapid warming we're seeing today, has actually got some uh, natural variations that have changed on the same sort of time scale. Yeah, so. in in the Arctic or sub-Arctic uh, towards the end of glacials, or also inside glacials, uh, they were able to show this rapidity. And it deals with how fast uh, sea ice melts. Mm-hmm. 
So, so what creates a very rapid change in the surface or in the atmosphere is the um, rapid disappearance of sea ice, which is again driven probably through underlying changes in the circulation of the ocean. This is in part because of the interaction between ocean and atmosphere, yeah. where sea ice serves as a decoupling. Yeah. But as you remove it, you can generate these very large fluxes yeah. from warm ocean to cold atmosphere. Yeah. The, the, the ocean is warm underneath, or at least much warmer than the atmosphere, so it gives off heat. Yeah. And that, that creates very rapid uh, climatic change. So this is one type of uh, physical control that would actually limit how quickly it is physically possible for the ocean to change in temperature. Yeah, and, and, and it, it's only in those places where you have uh, sea ice, I think it can, it can change that rapidly. Yeah. Um, maybe also in, in, in areas where if you have changes in, in the winds that generate more or less upwelling, so whether it, 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 the winds draw cold waters from underneath to the surface, mm. they, there may also be very rapid changes there. But it's, it's, uh, the polar areas are the most uh, prone to have this uh, rapid variability. Regarding ocean circulation and the way sort of currents flow around the Earth, is there any, are there any limitations on how quickly ocean currents can change, ocean circulation can change? Um, it's difficult to answer because it, it, it's depending on which part of the ocean you're dealing with. The, the deep ocean circulation uh, is, of course, quite slow. It, it takes more than a thousand years for a parcel of ocean water to, to move from where it sinks in, in the Nordic seas to, to where, it, where at least parts of it comes up again in the Pacific mm-hmm. uh, or around Antarctica uh, a few hundred years less. But but uh, ocean, ocean currents can change rapidly. For instance, we they change uh, seasonally uh, uh, under the monsoon. So, so, so there they're dependent on the winds and the wind can, winds can change. So, so um, it basically, uh, the question is, what system we are analyzing, uh, and whether we are looking at the deep ocean or or the or the surface, which is primarily influenced by the winds, but also the deep ocean can can change quite rapidly under these um, rapid changes. The overturning, the sinking of water in the North Atlantic, is changing rapidly uh, uh, because of these processes that we talked about. This brings me on to a, an interesting question that's often asked. Uh, there's a lot of interest in the AMOC, the Atlantic uh, Meridional Overturning Circulation. And the question is, how stable is it? Is it changing? Uh, there are concerns that it will stop or reverse or weaken in some fashion. Um, your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is something that I've been debating. Uh, and, and there are different opinions around that. Uh, my feeling is that it's more stable than many people uh, would like it to, to be uh, because it's, it's at least the northern limb that we, we, we are uh, flushed with uh, um, 
uh, in this part of the world is primarily uh, depending on the wind-driven circulation. So, so, and the low-pressure systems will cross the Atlantic. So, so I think that part is quite stable. But there may be some some uh, rapid changes happening if lots of fresh water uh, is is melting and and. Uh, the only source we can see for that happening is is the Greenland ice sheet and the the sea ice cover in the Arctic, mm. and and even though the, both of them are diminishing, uh, I haven't seen evidence that this is of the scale that would would flip the whole uh, circulation. So so I'm not so uh, concerned about this, but it's something that we know too little about and. It's one of these um, things in, in the climate system which can have a large effect if it happens. And we cannot rule out these things happening in the future. So, so, so it needs to be observed. Definitely an area for continued research, particularly yeah. at the Bjarkmas Centre. Yeah, clearly. And we are really well pos- positioned to do that. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so if I could move a little bit away from the topic of paleo-oceanography... Um, you yourself have had a very long and very successful career and you were the founder, the director of the Bjorkner Center for Climate Research. Can you say something about how um, the research has evolved over your time? Yeah, uh, it has really evolved and the the main aspect I think is is worth noting is that when, when I started... Uh, well, two two aspects. One is, of course, the societal importance of what we are doing. Mm. It, it's something that everybody should be concerned about uh, because of of the anthropogenic climate change. Uh, and and this knowledge, when I was a student, was was just for people with interest in, in finding out how the how the planet works, but not for any any political reason or any societal reason outside of knowing more about uh, our planet. So that has changed. The other thing that has changed a lot is uh, the interdisciplinarity. Um, when when I started, we were working in small small groups, a few students and a professor in within our disciplines. Uh, mine was was marine geology. So there was a there was a good group there, but then uh, when we got in contact with with the leading international groups at that time, those who developed the the uh, knowledge about the orbital uh, forcing of the of the ice ages, or the carbon cycle, um, they were already in uh, being involved in experiments with climate models. So. So getting in touch with climate modelers, uh, which we started to do here uh, in Bergen in the 90s, uh, really set the, the tone for what became the Bjerkner Center. And the, uh, so that interdisciplinarity of, of merging basic knowledge about the, the uh, sediments and, and the, how the ocean influences sediments with physics uh, through the modeling uh, is has been a major major driver, and that's been making uh, 
me, uh, uh, my life as a scientist is very, very interesting because I could lean on those who knew things that I didn't know. We can always go further if we go together. Yeah. You've been involved in numerous global research programs and you've had prominent roles with sort of like IPCC and the assessment reports. Um, what do you see as the importance of those sort of activities and these sort of international programs uh, for future research? I think they, they play a, a major role. Uh, it creates a, a community of, of researchers because researchers in one single country cannot solve these questions. Um, the resources that are needed needs pooling uh, between uh, countries or, and continents. Uh, so, so I've been uh, heavily involved in the ocean drilling program, which has extracted lots of these sediments that that we we study, uh, and and that is a truly global global uh, program where many countries uh, pool their resources into running a, a very expensive uh, drill ship. Uh, but of course, in in the present situation with with um, the climate crisis that is unfolding, uh, the knowledge that has been gathered through the IPCC has has been critical. Uh, now we can say, well, that message about what the climate system does and how it reacts to to our emissions of greenhouse gases is well known, also for the politicians. So now it's more the the question of how you how you get societies to transform uh, as a message or as a response to to that message um, so i think in order to to solve the question we are now much more uh, dependent on 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 uh, social sciences and humanities than we are on on natural sciences but there are lots of things that we don't know and that we should know better in order to project uh, the future course. But I think uh, without these global uh, scientific uh, communities uh, organized through the IPCC, I don't think we would have been where we are in terms of at least acknowledging that there is a cl climate crisis. And hopefully that may lead to, uh, to solving of the crisis. If I could just ask you one last question and bring you back a little bit to your to your own science. If you were an early career scientist starting out your career today, what would you hope to see in your field in the next 20 to 30 years? Mm, diff difficult question because uh, scientific, uh, well, this basic research, you, you, you basically don't know the answers when you start. So, so it, it is to look for the unknown and, and to, to explore possibilities and ideas. And, and that will eventually lead to new knowledge. It's very difficult to, to say what knowledge uh, we need and what will be produced. So I think it's more to be uh, interested in a broad aspect and, and, uh, and pursue uh, your most uh, uh, ambitious ideas uh, rather than looking for something particular. Because if you do that, then that has already been found out. It definitely sounds like the voice of expertise. <laughs> uh, 
Recently, you've been elected as Vice President of the European Research Council, so we would like to take this opportunity to congratulate you on that appointment. Thank you. It'll be challenging. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's podcast. We've been talking with Einstein Janssen about paleo-oceanography. Einstein, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I'm Stephen Alton, here with my colleague Ingil Pilskuk, thanking you once again for tuning in to another Bjerknes podcast. Thank you for listening. Du har nå lyttet til en podcast fra Bjerknes Senteret for Klimaforskning. Bjerknes Senteret er et partnerskap mellom Universitetet i Bergen, Norwegian Research Center, NORS, Nansen Senteret og Havforskningsinstituttet. Musikken er av Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, under Creative Commons licens BI 3.0. Podcasten er redigert av mig, Ingjerd Pilskog, Høgskolen på